Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this day. My name is uh, Frank Wong. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Potomac Hills uh, Presbyterian Church. And if you're new this morning, uh, as I expect many of you are, uh, what with the holidays and and all of that, I'd love to meet you after the service. So please do come and find me, if nothing else but to extend a warm welcome to you. and since we likely have uh, family, uh, friends, and visitors with us this morning, a bit of context is in order. Uh, we've spent the last 12 weeks in 1 Corinthians. We've talked about divisions in the church, the centrality of Christ crucified, and applied the gospel to the practical issues that face the church, specifically church discipline, uh, lawsuits among believers, sexual immorality, marriage, and the spiritual nature of our transformation in Christ. And this morning, it seems fitting uh, that the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we will talk about food. A word of note, uh, we are going to be taking a break from 1 Corinthians starting next week. Um, Advent season is upon us. And uh, as the whole world starts to count down towards uh, Christmas, we're going to be doing a special series in the Minor Prophets to prepare us for uh, the wonder of God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ. So... If you would turn with me now in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 8 and grab your sermon outline, uh, let's turn our attention to God's Word. We'll be reading the whole, uh, whole chapter this morning. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anybody loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom, uh, we, whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, No better off if we do, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus... Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my, my brother stumble, I will not eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let us pray. Father God, we uh, come to this passage uh, a little strangely. None of us really deal with issues of food, sacrifice to idols, but Lord, um, we ask that you would make this passage relevant to our present lives. For Lord, we know that it is. 
Lord, would you speak to us clearly through me this morning that uh, the words that come out of my mouth would be your words for us to hear, words of both conviction and of grace. Lord, be with us now. Um, Help us learn from your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's one thing that we've learned from this series in 1 Corinthians, it's that the presenting issue is often not the root issue. The topic this morning, eating food, uh, sacrifice to idols, is actually not the main point of this passage. Rather, it's the occasion to talk about something much deeper. And with that in mind, I want to start this morning by telling you why uh, youth leaders don't play Ultimate Frisbee anymore at Mojnik. And for those of you that are not uh, not familiar with Mojnik, uh, Mojnik is a youth retreat where about 500 students and leaders and 25 or so churches get together to think about the backwards nature of the kingdom of God. Hence the name Mojnik, which is literally the word kingdom spelled backwards. Now, this is probably about 2008 or 2009, and I'd recently graduated from college. I was young, proud, headstrong, and absolutely loved playing Ultimate Frisbee. Uh, It was, and still is, hands down, my favorite sport to play. And when I arrived at Mojnik that year, I was beside myself with excitement, because I had heard that there was an Ultimate Tournament uh, um, being held. And back then, I was pretty intense about uh, Ultimate and about playing games in general, and so some things change and some things stay the same. Um, (laughs) And my thought process back then was that the Lord had called us uh, to excellence in all things. And so we were to play hard and well, no matter the context. And and so I had this sort of disdain for church rules, you know, those rules about like, oh, it's, you know, a church gathering, we're just going to sort of fudge the rules and just sort of make sure everybody has a good time and all of that. And I just really hated that. Um, The idea of not playing strictly by the rules and playing to win were laughable to me. And now you can see where this is going. I approached this tournament at a middle school church youth retreat like I approached the tournaments in the regional adult league that I played in at the time. Mind you, I'm a year or two out of college at this point, and so I'm going to be bigger, faster, stronger than any middle schooler. Um, And I'm chomping at the bit to get into the action and dominate, you know? And so that's exactly what I did. Uh, I subbed in and I took charge. You know, I'm tossing dimes for scores, soaring over four foot, five inch sixth graders uh, to catch long bombs for scores. You know, it was, it was bad, man. It was bad. Now, imagine what it would have been like uh, for middle schoolers to watch their adult leader just lay waste to opposing teams. Sure, my team would have loved the winning, right? But everybody else probably didn't. Uh, now, imagine you're an adult leader from another church watching this unfold. You've got an adult running roughshod over middle schoolers. What are you thinking? You're probably thinking, man, this jerk is like trying to relive his glory days, and can he he see that he's completely missing the point of being a youth leader? And thankfully, the leaders at the retreat were really, really gracious people. So they pulled me aside and quietly asked what I was there for. That's all. That's all they did. They asked me, what are you there for? 
They asked me for what purpose I had given up a weekend and spent four hours on a bus with 50 crazy middle schoolers. And apparently this wasn't an isolated incident because at the planning meeting following this particular uh, retreat, we unanimously agreed that adults should no longer play in games and that we should tone down the competitiveness of the games too, lest a sort of over-competitive adult like me lose his cool. Now, this is a funny story, right? But did I have a right to play hard? Well, I guess so. Was I right in saying that the Lord wants us to do things with excellence and to do things well? Well, of course, sure. There's nothing inherently wrong with playing a game well or hard. But had I, had I completely missed the point of being a youth leader on a church youth retreat playing in a friendly game of Ultimate Frisbee? Well, absolutely. I was focused on me, my fun, and my glory when my whole purpose for being there at all was to serve not only our kids, but also the kids from the other churches. And so it was with the Corinthian church. They were exercising their rights and their freedoms, just like I was, but they had completely missed the point when it came to the exercise of those freedoms. They were misusing their freedoms, and ultimately they were hurting their fellow believers, and by extension, sinning against Christ. And so this is what Paul really wants to talk about. He wants to talk about our inward orientation towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, towards other believers. How do we approach treating each other? Now, before we get to the text, another word of context. We have a passage before us today about food sacrifice to idols. In America, we don't really deal with the issue of food sacrifice to idols, uh, but we shouldn't sort of dismiss this as a first century Grecian problem. Folks around the world still struggle with this very issue. And so we shouldn't be sort of ageist or, uh, I guess, geographist, okay? Um, so what do we know about the world that the Corinthians are living in since it is so different from the one that we're living in? Cor Corinth was a bustling Greek town in the first century. It was an important economic hub. And with that, uh, with that wealth came all the temptations the world had to offer. And it, also, it was also renowned for its pagan culture, with its pagan temples being at the heart of social life. And f the food offered to idols here almost certainly refers to meat sacrificed uh, in temples. Meat in that day would have started on an altar to some idol. A portion would have been given to the priests in that temple, and then uh, another portion would have been served in the temple, um, sort of in a cafeteria, if you would, and the rest would have been sold at market. And in that era, meat was a treat. Um, only the rich would have been able to afford to eat meat on a regular basis. And as a result, the only time the masses, the poor, would have been able to enjoy meat would have been when they were attending an idol festival or a pagan festival. And so if you take all of this into account, eating meat would have been closely tied with pagan worship. It's like eating candy corn or pumpkin-flavored treats and thinking of fall. That's how close things were. Um, eating meat would have gone hand in hand with those sort of pagan experiences. And furthermore, eating in the temples was woven into the very fabric of Corinthian social life. To refuse to eat in the temples would essentially cut you off from a huge part of the wider community life. 
And now, we wouldn't be talking about this issue unless the Corinthian church had problems agreeing on how to uh, deal with meat offered to idols. Many of the Corinthians would not have wanted to give up eating meat because it was a delicacy and a treat, and others wouldn't have wanted to give up the social aspects of eating in the temples. They would have wanted to climb sort of their social ladder, and if they had given up those t- that temple um, meal, they would have been ostracized. They wouldn't have been able to do that. And, uh, but for some, uh, they would have been able to eat meat without a second thought about somehow participating in idol worship. But for others, they couldn't separate the food from their previous pagan experiences. And so the church ended up divided into two camps, those that permitted eating meat and those that did not. Now we see here in chapter 8, Paul sort of divides his thoughts into three parts. First, he identifies the issue in verses 1 through 3. The Corinthians are not using their knowledge in a loving way. Then he works through each part of that issue. Verses 4 to 6 deal with the knowledge, and verses 7 to 13 deal with the love. And so we're just going to be following his sort of thought process as we go. So let's dive in. What's the issue here? Well, the issue is that the Corinthians have missed the point, just like I did. Paul quotes their claim that all of us possess knowledge. But what is the knowledge that the Corinthians claim to possess? Well, we find that down in verse 4. The Corinthians have deduced that since idols are really nothing at all, and that all Christians know that idols are nothing, then we are free to eat. But then he immediately skewers their argument. Their so-called knowledge does nothing but puff them up with pride and selfishness. And Paul has already used the word that is translated puff up back in, verse, uh, back in chapter 4, verse 6. And he says there, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And so Paul is calling them on their self-absorbed pride. It's the relational aspect of their so-called knowledge that Paul criticizes. The folks that can eat meat without a second thought think of themselves as better Christians. They're using their abilities and their freedoms to pat themselves on their back. Look at me. I'm so strong in the faith that I can eat amid the idolatry without a single sin. Sound familiar? It's just like me on the ultimate field. Look at me. I'm so good at this game. I'm so much better than all of you. The selfishness, the self-absorption and disregard for others is blatant and obvious. It makes you not want to be friends with me. Because in this particular area, I care only about myself. Paul goes on to, not, to deny that this Corinthian group truly knows as they ought to know. Verse 2 is pretty blunt. You think you know something about what it means to be a strong Christian, but you, in fact, have completely missed the point. For them, knowledge was self-serving. It freed them to do what they wanted to do. But a Christian's knowledge is rooted in grace. If we call ourselves Christians, we are first known by God while we were still in our sin. This is verse 3. True Christians understand that we have been saved because God knew us. Being known by God is really the only thing that matters. Think back to Matthew 7, where not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter heaven. The Lord will declare that some, he will declare to some that uh, I, will, I have never known you. I never knew you. 
Everything a Christian is comes out of this gracious knowing by the Lord, this gracious union with the Lord Jesus. And if Christians, um, and for Christians to puff themselves up because they think they know right doctrine clearly misses the humility and sacrifice of Christ on the cross to open their eyes to that knowledge in the first place. Now, it's important to know that Paul doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Knowledge is important, and right doctrine is, in fact, important. Which brings us to verse, verses 4 to 6, the sort of knowledge part of the issue. And this will be, like, super quick. It is important to know that Paul doesn't immediately start in with where the Corinthians are wrong. Rather, Paul affirms the knowledge that they, possess, they profess and they possess. The error is not in the doctrine. Verses 4 to 6 make this clear, that Paul agrees with them. They do have a right to eat in the temples and, ha- and to not worry about participating in idolatry. It's also important to note that Paul doesn't condemn them for thinking these things. Some folks would hear Paul's sort of admonition that uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up as a push towards an all-you-need-is-love ideal. And that's just not true. Paul is clear that they have freedom in Christ because their eyes have been opened to the truth. It is because they know that idols are nothing that they have freedom. What we have here are elementary doctrines of God. God is is only God if there is only one of him. He can't be God unless he's supreme over all things, and so thus idols are not gods at all. Again, what they know, what they know is not wrong. What is wrong is what they do with that knowledge. Which brings us to part two, the love part of the issue. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. Looking at verse 7, we see that Paul again plays on the very words that the Corinthians use to rationalize their actions. Instead of going after the word knowledge, Paul reinterprets the word possess. Here in the church, we talk a lot about the heart. We talk a lot about heart issues and sort of working things into our heart. And that's what Paul means. While Christians should know that there isn't anything to an idol, that they have no real existence, the truth may not be fully possessed in both head and heart of every Christian. It hasn't, it hasn't sunk deep into the hearts of every believer. But verse 9 is key here. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And Paul clearly acknowledges that there are some that are weaker and some that are stronger. His word to the weak is clearly implied. Get stronger. You ought to live in light of the freedom that you have in Christ. But his word to the strong is far more than implied. It's explicit and it lands like a hammer. His word to the strong is, how can you possibly do this to your brother? Paul argues in verse 10 that if anyone anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? The idea is that the weak believers would be pressured either externally or internally to be like everybody else, even when their conscience tells them that they shouldn't. And probably the best example of this uh, recently in my life has been what to do about the show Game of Thrones, okay? Some some Christians love this show. 
They love it for its depth of characters and unpredictable plot, and other Christians loathe it. They loathe it for its gratuitous violence, your in-your-face sexual content, and the perversion that is rampant in this, in this series. Some Christians claim to be able to watch this show without sin. I can't. I tried and I failed. Okay. Now, are, are people able to watch this show? Are they free to? Well, yes, they're free to watch it. It might not be beneficial to them, but they're free to watch it in Christ. But for me, who can't watch it without sin, am I free to watch it? No, because then I sin. And so instead, I just watch YouTube clips of it, like little minute, minute and a half clips. It's amazing what you can piece together just from like a minute and a half clip that cuts out all the bad stuff, okay? But that's sort of beside the point. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie. When I hear that somebody that I look up to in the faith enjoys this show, I think a couple of things. First, I think, yeah, sure, you can watch that show without sin. And following a close second to that dismissive and probably sinful first slot is, man, I wish I could watch that show without sin. It's only a TV show. I'm a pastor, for goodness sakes. I should be able to handle a simple TV show. And so you see the temptation that is set before me, a weak one, and that it's about a TV show that I'm not really all that desperate to watch. Watching others do something that they're able to do in their freedom in Christ that I'm not able to do, I begin to pressure myself to be like them. Now think about the context for the, for the Corinthians. Many of the weaker brothers would have desperately wanted to eat the meat that was available to them. It would have been really nice, a treat. It would have been nice to not be isolated from the social life of the city. And following their conscience, which is weak, would have been profoundly costly to them. They would have felt out of step with the prevailing culture, like a misfit toy. And really, why do they feel this way? They feel this way because their brothers and sisters in Christ set before them an example that ended up becoming a temptation. And the temptation to rationalize doing something against your conscience because you think you ought to be able to do so as a Christian is a timeless one. It's a, it was a stumbling block back then, just as it is a stumbling block for me today. And the charge that goes along with Paul's argument is that if this becomes a stumbling block, spoiler alert, uh, it did, which is why he's writing about it, then the Corinthians care more about eating meat, or in my case, Game of Thrones, then they care about their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, before we get upset that this sets a sort of bad precedent and that we're not responsible for what other folks do or don't do, I want to say that we act this way. We act in line with Paul, uh, Paul's argument almost reflexively. This, this principle that Paul is laying out is almost second nature to us. Would we serve alcohol at a family dinner if one of our family members was an alcoholic? Absolutely not. Would we take a vacation to Vegas or go to a casino if one of the family members had a gambling problem? Well, no, of course not. We would think that'd be ridiculous. Neither of those would be even remotely loving because we know exactly the struggle that they have. 
And so we often constrain ourselves for the sake of the ones that we love simply because we don't want to tempt them with sin or pressure them to sin by going against their consciences. And this is no different. This is the no adults playing rule at Mochnik. Leaders who, keep, who can keep their competitiveness in check are giving up their right to play for me, for my sake, so that I might not be tempted to do something stupid. Okay? And you know, if simple care for your brother isn't enough, let's consider Paul's move to connect this to Christ. At the end of verse 11 and in verse 12, Paul reminds the Corinthians that us... Uh, Paul reminds the Corinthians and us that this weaker brother that we are throwing temptation before was bought with the precious blood of Christ. This is a big deal. Paul calls what the Corinthians are doing by eating the temples a sin, not because it's wrong for them to eat there, but because it causes their brother to stumble. It's an intentional action. It's not a situation where some believers don't know that some of their brothers and sisters in Christ are potentially tempted to sin by their actions. No, it's a blatant disregard or even disdain for those that are weaker. Again, we come back to the Majnik ultimate field. It would have been a lot worse if I had gone about what, uh, what I did. Um, it would have been a lot worse if I had gone out there and played uh, really hard knowing that that was wrong. But I was unfortunately and thankfully too self-absorbed to have that kind of awareness. So I guess it worked out a little bit. Um, The Corinthians have no such excuse. And mine is pretty lame to begin with. Paul calls what they're doing a sin because they cause or lead their sins, uh, their brothers and sisters in Christ, to sin against their consciences. And so Paul is calling the Corinthians, and by extension us, to something radical. He's calling us to lay down our rights and our freedoms because Christ died for our weaker brothers and sisters. Plain and simple. And just so that we're clear here, this is not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to be maddeningly frustrating. We're going to feel a lot of, really? You think that? Come on. It's really not that hard to whatever, fill in the blank. These are the people that from our perspective, our strong perspective, they can't seem to apply basic Christian doctrine to their lives. It's really going to be frustrating for the, for the strong Christian. But to that, to that I ask, how valuable is this person to you? We often measure uh, what we think something is worth by what we're willing to give up for it. Is your brother and sister in Christ worth your discomfort? Is he or she worth the headaches upon headaches they seem to produce? Is your brother or sister worth putting up with their ability to make a dumpster fire of their lives on a regular basis? When do you decide that your desires are worth more? You know, Christ thought uh, that this person was worth dying for. Do you see it the same way? What about Christ? Is he valuable enough for you to stop doing whatever may be a stumbling block for this person? Do you think that Christ is more valuable than your freedoms that Christ himself gave you? 
Let's take this back to Matthew 25, verses 41 to 45. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And when they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the, of the least of these, you did not do it to me. When we see our brothers and sisters in Christ struggling with something that we do not struggle with, do we see it as an opportunity to love Christ by loving them, by laying down our rights and our freedoms? On a side note, this, all of this that we're talking about, requires us to know our brothers and sisters in Christ intimately. We need to know what they struggle with lest we put stumbling blocks before them unintentionally. Do you know the people that are in this room that would uh, possess faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know them well enough to know what they struggle with? Do you know anyone in this room well enough to say what they struggle with and what potential stumbling blocks there may be? You know, we don't do life alone. Everything you do will have an impact in some way on someone in the church. The best way to get to know people is to spend time with them, and that's why we have our community groups. If you don't like groups of people or don't think that they're doing enough to build relationships, guess what? You still need to spend time to get to know them. And it comes back to what you think is valuable. It's a matter of priorities like Jonathan said earlier. Your priorities reflect what you value. If you value the body of Christ, if you value those whom your Savior died for, and if you value Christ himself, then you will value getting to know his bride, the church. And you know, when we're concerned about our rights, we inevitably are self-centered. When we are concerned about our rights, we are inevitably self-centered. It becomes about getting what is owed to us. It can be about getting payment. It can be about setting the record straight. It can be about any number of things. But this passage challenges us to not be primarily about our rights and freedoms, but about loving our brothers and sisters in Christ by laying down our very lives for them. Embedded in verse 11's reminder that Christ died for the weak brother is the implication that you, strong brother, are a weak brother too. Christ could have demanded his rights. He could have refused to give up anything for us. Remember what I said uh, we were going to feel like uh, when we were dealing with our, our weaker brothers, that frustration? Can you imagine what it would have been like for God to look upon us? Really? You're going to choose sin? Come on. How hard can it be to choose me instead of sin? Am I not worthy enough? Am I not good enough? Am I not, like, have I not showered you with enough blessings? And yet Christ did this for us. He laid down all things for us. From Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 9, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're able to give up our rights because Christ gave up his for us first. I want to close by returning to the Mojnik ultimate field in the following years. I'm now super happy to stand on the sidelines cheering my students on. I'm happy to give up my freedom to play because I look at both the game and the students differently. I see the game as not something that I myself can enjoy, but as an opportunity to serve my students. And I see my students not only as valuable in of themselves, but as valuable because my Lord and Savior paid for them with his very life and with his very precious blood. And so are you willing to step out of the game that you love so much? Are you willing to give up that thing that you enjoy? Are you willing to lay down your rights and your freedoms for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Why do we willingly, happily, and joyfully give up our rights and our freedoms for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ? We do it because we're excited to serve our Lord, who died for one such as this. Let's pray. Father God, before us is a challenge to give up our rights, our privileges, our, the things that we love, the things that we enjoy for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, you have called us to serve uh, each other, but mostly to serve you since we are all united to you. Lord, help us as we go from this place to see the ways in which we are uh, setting up stumbling blocks for our, our brothers and sisters. And Lord, will we count uh, them and you worthy enough to give up whatever we're doing? Lord, help us both see and to do all that you call us to do. May we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.